It's the lens, it's the lens, it's the lens, gotta live diverse. It's the lens, it's the lens, it's the lens, live diverse. You are listening to The Lens Living Diverse, a podcast brought to you by the CNIB Advocacy Team. Join Nisha, Vivi, and I as we speak to individuals with intersecting identities who live with sight loss as they share their unique stories. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Lens Living Diverse. Woo-hoo, woo-hoo. I am your host for today, Ben, accompanied and welcome back. We haven't had an episode with uh, Vivi for a long time, accompanied with uh, Vivi. Hello, Royal Lens listeners. I have missed you. I'm so happy to be back. Yeah, and we are happy to have you back. I I was kind of getting lonely on the lens, you know, without my my co host <laughs> Oh, we know you're an expert at flying solo, Ben. But <laughs> thanks for the love. Oh <laughs> uh, no, no, it's always good to have uh my co host in the building, and well, I guess in um what you call Radio City, Radio Land. Yes, in the atmosphere. Exactly, in the ethers. On the airwaves, so. on the pod waves. <laughs> we, need, <laughs> we need a thesaurus right now, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so today we have another special episode. Every For the listeners, everybody knows that every episode is special. Uh, we have an amazing guest, Alex Burns, and we're going to uh, talk to him about technology. And I know sometimes people think technology, what does that have to do with intersectionality or what does that have to do with identities but uh alex is uh very very knowledgeable about different technologies and then he's going to share his stories as well with his different identities so alex how you doing boss i'm good thank you excellent uh, well it's a good day and let's uh let you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit of your intersecting identities Okay, sure. Uh, quite a lot of them. Um, so, yeah, my name is Alex. Uh, I uh, grew up in England, uh, in the UK. I moved here about five years ago, um, and I really like Canada a lot. Um, so I'm blind, uh, was born premature, which means uh, that you get put into an incubator and then they uh, over-oxygenate Oh, at least that's what happened to me. Um, so my uh, retina is detached, which I'm cool with. I, I don't mind being blind. Um, you don't have to watch advertising. It's great. Um, <laughs> they're annoying enough if you can just listen to them. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy about it. <laughs> um, and uh, the, um, you know, so this is that. Uh, because I was born premature, that meant, well, possibly means that I'm autistic. So, I mean, I'm autistic, but that's most likely the reason. Um, although it might not be. Genetics could could definitely be in with how weird my family are. Um, so who knows? And mm-hmm. uh, the... Um, what else? Oh, my dad uh, was Jamaican, so um, I'm mixed race as well. Uh, and I've got ADHD. So I got a smorgasbord of things. So, Alex, you said you came to Canada five years ago. What brought you to Canada? My wife. Like, we were married then. Um, That's very sweet. Also, I didn't really want to permanently live in England, so I'd have moved somewhere else at some point. But, yeah, that definitely uh, (laughs) was my motivation. So your wife is Canadian? Yep. Cool. We have a Um, a true love story on the lens living diverse. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to do. We will have to do. And we met uh, 11 years ago today. Oh, Aww. even better. Even better. Look at this. We have, well, shout out to Alex's wife. Yes, uh, what's yeah, her she's name? Called Barb. She's Barb? called Barb. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so sweet. I, I, shout out I, to Barb. Like I said, yeah. I feel the love in the air right now. And yeah, like I said, just a smorgasbord of different identities. And definitely, we're gonna we're gonna go for that journey for sure. You made mention that you're biracial, and as a person with uh, sight loss, can you tell us your experiences of your two uh, different uh, races? 
Yeah, sure. Pretty much I'm, as far as I'm concerned, pretty white. Like, uh, culturally, didn't really know much about Black culture at all. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, it's been quite funny because uh, if I tell people online that I'm, you know, not white, they don't. Uh, like, uh, a lot of time people don't believe me and had, had to ask for photographic evidence. I'm pretty easygoing, so that to me was funny um and ridiculous i know that it would offend like a lot of people um but i, I just kind of thought how stupid that was and uh like we don't all have to sound the same i've had more racism issues since i came over here actually mm -hmm. um maybe i'm more aware of it now but like yeah i've had problems here um more so for being um mixed race than i got in the UK, I've had a little bit of it in the UK, but everyone gets it in the UK. Um, <laughs> uh, they, they pat themselves on the back for being such an inclusive culture. And I mean, some ways they are, but like it's, it's, it's there and it's just swept under the rug. Do you think Alex, people wanted photographic evidence because of your British accent? And we yeah. know that Canada, like the UK is a very diverse country. So that- It was mainly Americans. Really? That's interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the so it would come out after a few weeks of me talking to random people online, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, whenever it's relevant, um, mm -hmm. which can be months. Like, it, it rarely even comes up unless I'm talking about my hair or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I think usually it would be, oh, yeah, what's your hair like? Oh, I have an afro. What? Um, well, yeah, why, what's wrong with that? Um, so it would rarely even be broached. Mm -hmm. um, some people didn't even know for years because I just didn't think it was relevant yeah. right. or important. Yeah. yeah. Um, so as I've kind of gotten more older, I've been aware of racial disparity since I was 15, like the time in history. It was a sanitized version the version that made England look good, you know. Mm. Oh, we were the first <laughs> to abolish the slave trade, but, uh, uh, you know, we still uh, have um, uh, indentured, basically indentured, uh, you know, uh, culture where people um, do a lot of the menial jobs that other people think that they're too high and mighty to do. So it's it's there, it's just swept under the rug. Actually, I'm wondering from uh, the Jamaican side, because I know with... Um, individuals like i'm a person who is fully ganyan so right away like i seek out my my ganyan descent and i seek out my ganyan past uh was it ever a time where you you seek that jamaican heritage or was it just kind of like uh, something that okay like i have my other side and that's that's good enough kind of type deal so my dad was not a nice person at all. So I ignored 95% of the stuff he said. Um, <laughs> and uh, he also got the Jamaican beaten out of him uh, at school mm. and, um, you know, in the streets kind of thing. So he pretty much like, I don't know. I learned nothing from him, next to nothing, apart from random disjointed stories about Jamaica as a kid like that. that that's it. He moved when he was six, you see, so. Definitely a d interesting dynamic, right? Because it's where your experiences kind of provided the idea of how you feel about, like, your culture, right? Even just to make mention about your, your other disability of being on the spectrum as well. And I found that with uh, the podcast, we have individuals who emphasize on just being persons with low vision or blindness. Uh, so with being on the spectrum as well as living with uh, sight loss, do you find that that ever clashes? And just like you're, you being biracial, oh, yeah. do you find that you kind of have to pick back and forth uh, which one at all? So I've never felt the race. The race doesn't even come into my awareness of things very often yes like this is probably going to sound bad but like i know that uh culturally there are interesting things there like i'm pretty psyched to go over to jamaica this year um 
and see how it is, you know? Uh, that's one of my plans now that I finally have money. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that'll be good. Um, but I've never, the only time that I think of myself as being not white or at least under threat is if I'm out at night. Um, then I'll be like, oh, you could be attacked. If you're attacked, then you have to fight. If you fight, then there's going to be, you know, who are they going to believe? That kind of thing. Mm. Um, obviously, knowing that uh, we're being gunned down in the streets in various, like in a lot of places, or hated and uh, for that is also there. Um, but other than that, I don't think it fits in. I, I don't even consider it. Mm. Um as part of my self. Wow, that's yeah. interesting. So then, Alex, would you say that you're a person then that could pass since you're biracial, right? Like, so we say in the Black culture, you could pass, meaning that you could pass for a white person. Well, visually, no. Are you going to see a mm -hmm. huge afro? <laughs> um, <laughs> like that. And now I finally learned how to actually, you know, do my hair properly. Um, mm -hmm. So now it's not like a raggedy thing. It, it looks better than it did. Uh, it feels better. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think I'd pass in that way. People are going to know. Um, but in terms of how I act, yeah, I mean, look at my accent. It's very uh, kind of, well, I don't really know what it is. It's a, it's a mishmash of every everything. I changed my, ex, uh, my accent as a teenager, too. Um, yeah, tell us about that. How did you change your accent and why did you feel the need to change your accent? So in the UK, we were from a town um, called Halifax, which is in the north and part of England. And uh, over there, they they drop the H's. They um, they say they drop the T's, uh, the, 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 the voices different. I, I can do a caricature of my voice, what it used to be. Yeah, but I can't even yeah let's hear it. And, Give us an example, if you don't um, mind. Let's see. Hello, how you doing? It's great, isn't it? Um, it's oh, we're gonna watch TV and watch cartoons. Oh. Um. So, it it sounds kind of like um, uh, not not very with it. I mean, that that's the impression that people are going to have of you. So mm -hmm. I was into reading books since a young kid, and mm -hmm. uh, I thought, well, um, if I want to have aspirations of doing anything my accent has to go um so yeah it changed um i i changed it about 15 of it interesting because i don't know about yourself vivi where when i'm talking to my family members mm -hmm. my words change and i i start speaking with an accent as well so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Is that the same with you, Vivi? I know exactly what you both are talking about. And I guess now we'd call it kind of a code switching. But yeah. I just remember when I was little, really noticing that my family spoke differently than everybody else I heard around me. And at that time, I thought that was weird and different. So I didn't want to sound like them. So I think I took the opposite path. And I thought, well, you guys sound different and you don't sound like all the other Canadians. And I don't know how I feel about that. So I think I'd rather fit in than sound mm. different. And even at home, like I really think I consciously or unconsciously perhaps worked at trying to sound Canadian. That's exactly what I did because smart people don't sound uh, like that was my <laughs> logic at the time. Um, so, and I practiced, I was like, right, I'm going to mimic these posh people and I'm going to sit and I'm just going to mimic them repeatedly to myself. Um, it was very, very consciously done, um, at that age. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And how was it coming to Canada, uh, with that, um, kind of, uh, actually, how old were you when you did come to Canada? 28 okay so yeah no problem then i chose to come here <laughs> um like I, I wanted out as soon as brexit was uh on its way that was me gone like as soon as possible my wife was horrified one time when we were there and uh, somebody threw uh rocks at the cab drivers 
And also somebody asked the cab driver, one of the other cab drivers who was helping us in the store. So a lot of drivers there are um, Indian or Pakistani. Um, mm-hmm. Not always, but a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So somebody came up to us in the store and said, hey, wh- where are you from? To him, not me. And uh, he's like, I'm from here. No, no, where are you from? And she was like really upset. I was like, oh, this this kind of thing happens here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, it's, yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, she was like, but that that's horrible. I was like, yeah, it is. Um, and then when they were throwing rocks at the car, she was like, really really stressed and i was like yeah people used to do that rile up the um the other culture like annoy them and then if they fight back well you you then play the victim Mm. there's a there's a undercurrent of that it might be getting supposedly it's getting better and i think that some of the people you know it's not everywhere it's a loud minority right who are going to be loud yeah and it's definitely very sad what's uh, going on and kind of the discrimination what i'm going to actually do if it, we can roll uh, like with um speaking about your other identities as well yeah sure because I, yeah. it's very unique to the show where like as i made mention uh the fact that we in this uh on the show we speak about like just sight loss right mm. and i i definitely want to get your perspective on being someone who has a dual disability as well. And do you ever feel that those uh, disabilities clash or do you feel that you have to lean towards one to the other at all? Uh, okay. So um, I think that the being autistic at first was more of an impediment. Now I understand the the script. Uh, I, you know, I've learned um, how, how to communicate in a reasonable way now (laughs) um but at the time growing up there was no uh difference in people's tone to me i could not differentiate tone that is a common symptom uh of that uh so i couldn't hear if you were mad angry or you know happy or whatever it just all sounded the same um i also spoke in a monotone now i've worked on my elocution uh you know it's you basically make yourself scripts you follow the scripts and then it becomes subconscious. That's how I feel being autistic is in a nutshell. Um, so I was uh, mocked a lot by my family and siblings. Uh, so um, about 12, I told them that I did not detect or understand sarcasm. So they, of course, laughed at me even more. And then I thought, okay, well, um, it's time to go and learn this stuff. So I would take books, like listen to read audiobooks, and um, I would be uh, mimicking and analyzing the way that the character sounded when the thought process was going on. It was one of the best ways of learning that. It took me a good few years to to start understanding. And then once I understood, um, now I'm hyper aware. I'm, I'm listening for breaths. I'm listening for uh, pauses. I'm listening for subtle inflection i'm listening for that little tone down when somebody isn't really sure about something all that enthusiastic tone when they are or the uh, pause when they're awkward but they don't want to say anything and the hitch of breath if they're anxious there, there are so many tells that once you understand you can systematize it uh it fails when i'm tired like if i'm wrung out like i can't my humor detection dies completely everything is literal and there's no there's no differentiation um, in in that. It, it's like I can tell when I'm hitting a limit because my skills regress. Um, and I go from being able to just quip to not figuring out that the person isn't serious. And then, you know, so um, in my job now, I think it's an asset because I'm hyper aware. Mm. So because I'm hyper aware, uh, I teach tech. Um, I can tell if somebody sounds upset or I you know impatient or wants to leave and I can say hey you sound this way uh do you want to leave um psychology helped me understand as well the uh how to phrase things and how to ask questions so my whole existence is kind of turned around from not being very charismatic and quite shy um and introvert I'm still introverted but I understand the 
how to communicate and get somebody talking about themselves. When they talk about themselves, listen, show interest, genuine interest. They'll love you. Nobody cares mm. about other people's stuff. So just doing that means that your whole personality shifts. When people, when then you become more confident. When you're more confident, people respond in kind. Um, then you can get away with blabbing about your random interest that nobody else cares about because you've listened to their ones first, and then they'll either humor you and be like, "Oh, I never," uh, you know, and try and exit the conversation gracefully if they can, or, or they'll say, "Hey, I'm bored." Um, but if you start off just talking to somebody about um, how fascinating uh, this philosophical concept is, well, <laughs> it, it it does not work. People would do fascinating stuff to get out of conversations they don't want to be in. And then it, it's <laughs> very interesting. And here's you analyzing uh, people's temperaments and mannerisms and just by the sound of their voice and almost applying the blind side of it, it it almost would be a little bit different if you did have vision. Maybe you would be more facial expressions and more yep. uh, body language. And those are the factors. Yeah, I just um, thinking, Alex, as you're speaking, what you've done is you really developed a heightened sense of empathy. Um, and you've been able to tap into things that emotional intelligence has been trying to teach us for a very long time. All of those unconscious um signified things like you're speaking of the tone of voice the breath the pause the uh sense of anxiety or an anticipation like you've just really been able to tap into that and um develop your sense and your awareness of these things going on which which happened for everybody and i think if if we chose and if we took the time we too could develop them and these are things emotional intelligence is trying to teach us to do, but you've just really been able to recognize that and use these things to your advantage. And I just wanted to revisit something you said also about um, developing scripts. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Like, how did that work? Can you give us an example of a, a script that you had to develop for yourself that you returned to and now is kind of just um, something that you're able to execute effort, effortlessly in your in your work with your students? Yeah, sure. So, for example, um, usual discussion of, hello, how are you doing today? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would ask that with the expectation that somebody is going to tell me actually how they're doing today in more than just two syllables. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, uh, Oh, I'm okay. Gives nothing. Nobody, people are cagey with how they feel. So then it's, uh, how are you doing today? Um, is more neutral. Um, and, uh, I've only in the past two years understood why people talk about the weather. Apparently it's a really? common thing that makes them feel comfortable. And, um, it's mm -hmm. a thing that everyone can, uh, know something about because they step outside or they look outside their window um, and it, it gives them a sense of shared comfort and identity so that then they're able to go into the deeper topics so sometimes I, I did a lot of experiments on the trains when I would be on trains I, I would mm -hmm. um, just go up to random people and, and start um, testing out um, dialogue to see what would happen yeah um, so sometimes they would say how are you and I'd say oh I'm, I'm very depressed today um, I I I feel pretty numbed up, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and then lo and behold, uh, you know, some people would be, oh, uh, they'd either get awkward and leave or they, you would have a good conversation with depth in it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So now I know that people speak about the weather and if they bring it up, I'm not going to mock them because <laughs> I <laughs> went through a phase where I'd be like, do you have anything more interesting to talk about than the weather right now? Um mm. I'm not interested in how hot or cold it is today. It's self-evident. Um, <laughs> this is as a teenager. Um, so, you know, I'd be a bit more acerbic. Now I understand its function. So because I understand its function, I run it that way. Also asking open-ended questions about somebody as in, you know, um, uh, so if you say, how was your weekend? That's open because they can say however it was. But if you said, did you have a good weekend? They're obligated to say yes. Um Things like that. Uh, when I went into counseling as a discipline, um, they taught us all that. And then I started just applying that um, 
Because before I would just come in and say, oh, you seem quite stressed right now. And then mm -hmm. people would give you backlash for it. Um, mm. They don't want to acknowledge that they're stressed right now. So then definitely not going to be telling you. Right. I just really think it's fascinating uh, what you said about the weather, because as you're speaking, I'm thinking about why when I first engage with people, why it's a conversation about the weather. And I usually do it for the reason of I want to connect, but I don't necessarily want to get too intimate, like too deep. So mm -hmm. you're right. The weather is a common thing that we can connect on, but it's not, you know, what was your family doing over the weekend? Like, and I don't know if I want to go there with someone that I just mm -hmm. met. So it's, yeah, for me, it's a point of connection without getting too intimate. So, and I never realized that until you just named it. So that's, that's quite fascinating because mm -hmm. it is something that we can all connect with and we can choose how intimate we get after that starting point of the conversation. It's like a soother. Yes, like, absolutely. Um, to, to allow yeah. them to feel safe. Yes. Once you understand that it's to make people feel safe and that they don't actually really care about the weather, um, then uh, I'm a lot less uh, arrogant. Well, sometimes I care about the weather because I'm on the prairies and our weather is so extreme. So when I talk to Ben or somebody on the West Coast, I'm very, I am genuinely very curious because our weather in Canada is just so extreme from coast to coast to coast. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> or, or Vivi doesn't want to go deep, deep into conversation. How's the weather? No, I'm, well, I'm the I'm the I'm the worst for it. So like I and you know what it now that Alex, you're bringing it up. It definitely it makes a lot of sense. And exactly what Vivi was saying, the fact that you don't want to go too deep into it for sure, for sure. And with this whole conversation, I really thoroughly enjoy going back and forth with you in the way I uh, you think right it's yeah it's a different way of thinking for sure and um it, that's probably because for sure you're very uh, studious and you read a lot and then do you find that it's that being on the spectrum where it's like the hyper focus as well or uh, part of it is that the other thing is that I had to adapt. Um, mm -hmm. so empathy was due to a situation like my family situation of physical violence. Um, so you obviously have to get very good at reading people's um, uh, intentions quickly, yeah. um, so that you can get yourself out because otherwise you just get uh, assaulted. Um, so uh, I I think that it's a quite a common response to repeated and severe trauma for people to heighten their empathic skills like it's for animals we 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 um subjugate a lot of our stuff uh, to the subconscious and don't recognize what it is everyone's a humans like that you know but the uh um what i found out is heightening the intuition and trusting the intuition over the logical analysis of something is often better when it comes into the human sphere like um that's taken me a while um uh, i've started working on that over the past seven years um before i would have a gut instinct about somebody and then want to just see how it would go and detach and be curious to see what would happen um so yeah the empathy thing is good um like i mean the outcome is nice it basically has given me a career now <laughs> um <laughs> but the uh getting of that was not very good i would have rather had more support than what i did get mm -hmm. um the 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 thing could have been accelerated um you know and uh uh there could have been i could have basically been socially aware uh five to ten years before i was so um but i guess experience i mean striving for something apparently is a virtue so <laughs> who knows <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Alex. It's, it's really appreciated. And it's very, very intriguing, like I said, to uh, see how you look at the world as a person. Uh, you're, first of all, your personality, as well as a person, uh, part of the spectrum, as well as just such a studious person. So you made mention that you're into technology. And I, I got to say, you are a technology guru. And I know so many people are part of this uh, the organization who come to you 
hey, get to come to Alex for the tech advice. And the one thing that I know a lot of people are wondering, we're talking about the diversity, right? What does that have to do with technology? But there's so many different parts of it. So if you can kind of tell us about like, even with technology and why it is important to consider diversity. So for anyone who thinks that technology should not be diverse and inclusive, they're not thinking with much logic. Um, like I know I sound a bit aggressive here, but it's uh, it's a fact uh, that multiple people across multiple different uh, intersections are going to be interacting with tech. It's not a white male <laughs> uh dominate i mean it is a white male dominated uh developer or at least it used to be when i was interested in that field um but if you don't make yourself accessible then other people can't use it which then means that you have alienated a whole heap of your uh customer base if you're a business or your mission statement if you're a charity um the two are interlinked and interwoven tech is going to be is the thing that's driving our culture forward at crazy crazy speeds the insatiable knowledge to to keep pushing and exploit and get more things is a cancer, really. But the upside is that for us, we can read information that we never could access before. You would have had to get somebody at school to go and read for all your journal articles um, at university. If you even got to university, if anyone even taught you Braille. Um, so, you know, there, there are so many problems that, uh, tech adds on accessibility as an afterthought and then alienates more people because what could work for me might not work for a blind deaf person, a deaf blind person, or might not work for a um, somebody coming and learning the language, for example, of English, I mean, um, or uh, there's no black speech synthesizers yet. Mm -hmm. There's a you know, that I, I was searching, my wife said to me a few months ago, hey, is there a black speech simp yet? I was like, I have no idea, never thought about it, don't know. Um, she's like, well, come on, they must have an African or a Jamaican one. Nope, not yet. Um, why? Because people haven't bothered to think about how the phonemes would change if, uh, you know, and how to get the accent coded mm -hmm. correctly if it was mm -hmm. not their dominant language uh, or speech, sorry. Um so, you know, the, there's been no investment in that. And that's one of the, just a tip of the iceberg. Being blind, we complain when we can't access pictures. Well, we're just about getting the ability to access pictures now with the chat GPT, if it comes in in the way it should. But then we're going to have virtual reality, which is going to put us right back to where we were scrabbling at the margins, unless people decide to step up and spend the money. Um, and use their money and understand that their business is going to work a lot better by investing in stuff now and fixing the problem now. There's also other things like dyslexia, dyscalculia that you're not going to know that people have, um, and colorblindness and, uh, you know, uh, different light levels. There's different um, speech things. There's people who can't use Braille at all who are blind. There are people who, you know, I'm dyslexic too. I forgot about that. So mm. for me, letters jumble around, which is weird. It's it's obviously not a visual thing. It's a brain thing. The E's and the I's and the, the E's and the E-N's sometimes change for me and different bits of Braille. So when I found... Uh, being able to just grab books online and read mm. <laughs> with a synth even. Um, I, I was reading five, six books a week, probably more. I don't know. So I went for a period in my teenage years where I eschewed hanging out with my friends and in, in person for just reading. It's getting better because companies are being made to think about it more, but we have such a long way to go. Like mathematics is rendered useless uh, unless you have a, like I was uh, not able to do very well in mathematics because mm. it's all visual. Um, I can imagine a lot of you guys can, uh, who are blind would understand that. Um, you know, taking things at 2D, your, the sighted brain changes it uh, into 3D somehow or understands the abstract lines mean whatever. If you don't have that, you, you can't. Um, interact if you if you fail maths and science you can't go to university um you've no chance so the uh you know and what a way of diminishing talent for so many people 
and then for further perpetuating the problems and the stigma and the issues. So when I got a laptop at 10, um, I was pretty clued in that this is going to be how I can access most of my information. And I need to learn this thing pretty quick and get very good at it because this is what's going to get me out of my family and away yeah. in, you know, in the next decade or two. Yeah, Alex. So I was just interested in what you were saying about, um, you know, having a diverse synth for lack of a better phrasing, like, you know, black voices and synthetic voices. And I'm wondering if we're getting closer to that with all of the advancements in AI, because I know, you know, AIs are producing songs by hip hop artists and things like that, and they can replicate their voices pretty uh exactly without even that artist being involved you know just doing a grab of a sound and and then you can produce something so do you think we're getting closer to having those kinds of synths i'm making my friend uh sing at the moment Um, (laughs) that's uh, i'm part of the mainstream for once in my life like a lisa tacky mainstream which is kind of funny um yeah i've been into uh what ai can do um for the past year or two, I've started to become fixated on it um, mm-hmm. because it's fascinating. Somehow it can extract a pitch out of a person's voice and and break it down into mathematical equations, which I, I don't understand uh, any of how it's actually doing it under the hood. Um, but you sit and you spend hours on Google uh, reading and researching, and then, then eventually, you know, I have... Um, my friend sing Shania Twain so it's not good yet it's going to take a bit of time for it to become good but the there are severe problems uh not problems um I think it's a fascinating way of doing it I also don't think you can copyright a voice but now we're going to get into my pro, uh, political beliefs on copyright and how weird it is um but you know so yeah there's there is potential um what needs to happen is they need to be able to have it so it can do the speech at real time so if you type in text, the, the AI takes a bit of time to uh, to be able to read it back to you. So there's mm-hmm. a lag. Um, when mm-hmm. the bottlenecks become less and when people think about doing it, like you've already got people who are linking chat GPT to a clone of their voice and having it speak back to them. So it's on. So people are thinking about it. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that could help. Um, <clears throat> then the, the flip side to my disdain of copyright, though, is would you like your voice being used without permission? I don't know how neutral I'd be if somebody did that. Um, if they did it to make something interesting and funny, it would be great. Um, if they did it to do something harmful, but then how are you ever going to stop that? You're not. Like yeah. the, the regulation that they want to have on it, unless you start censoring the words that the AI can say, which then leads you into a whole heap of other quite, like philosophical problems. It's definitely like an ethical yeah, yeah. That, that whole ethical side of it. And uh, something that um, when you were speaking about prior, when we first even brought up the idea of technology and I, uh, even with, I guess, Vivi mentioning if there's Black um, voices as well and when that's going to happen, I am finding the importance of including diversity inclusion into technology because I it could be a form of colonization, right? Like once yep. again, that historical side of it where it's just like, just because we're individuals who are using a screen reader, we have to have a, a white sounding voice, right? It's yep. like no options. And even an example that popped into my head for uh, people who use emojis. And oh, yes. this, yes. yeah, and there's an argument where people are like, they're yellow, they're happy faces, but at the same time, like the fact that for years we were, like it wasn't a thumbs up that had a black hand, which looked mm-hmm. like my hand, you know what I mean? That were kind of because emojis represent who us, right? Right. Yeah. I just I just learned the other day a friend told me that you could change the color of your emojis. And I said, yeah. Well, you're gonna have to show me how to do that. Because yeah, that? they're mm-hmm. yellow. I never knew that. Wow. I did not know you could do that. I, I said I said to them, you're going to have to show me how to do that. Because, yes, they're yellow, and theoretically yellow is a, a neutral, nondescript color. But, yeah, just to have uh, that choice to have something that's a little bit more reflective of you, I think there's power and autonomy in that. Just 
just in the choice, like you don't even have to use that option, but just the fact that that option exists, I think, uh, speaks to, you know, a, a source of power that we can access. Exactly. And then even on top of, I'm going to throw another, Alex and uh, Vivi, I'm going to throw another layer onto that uh, using voiceover. So can you imagine you could change your emojis, but voiceover wouldn't even tell you? Yeah. yeah. Could you imagine that where it's like you did have the option, but even in voiceover now, it tells you it's a dark skin emoji. And it's just yes. like, yes, it does. We're yeah. trying to make technology as a whole society inclusive. Sometimes there's there's uh, instances where people forget about people with disabilities. And what, what do you think of that, Alex, as well as Vivi? I agree. It's not baked in. Um, mm -hmm. It's afterthought. This is what my problem is with the way that accessibility is tagged on as a nice to have. Um, I've had it where I've been talking to developers. If you discount the race, if, but I mean, it is a good thing. The rate, like the the white people got their emojis first, even though the white people, if you look at the numbers, uh, we outnumber them significantly on a global scale. Um, what we've done to quote developing countries is basically a forced caste system, in my opinion. Um, so again, the arms race is now collecting into Silicon Valley and probably in the UK and and in Canada, uh, who is going to be white people who are going to profit off of all the labor of, of as a as a species. Now, I think that the AI, AIs like everything should be um, used to train the data, but the the it is a severe problem, and um, I think just hand-waving away and deciding that we're progressive now without fixing the problems is virtual signaling, you know? Um, so, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, it took a while for voiceover to even tell you the color. I agree. We should be looking at things from this perspective of being born accessible, as we like to say, and we're all, I think, familiar with that phrase. Um, and I think we're still striving for that we're progressing but you know we need to uh do more to and i say we as society as a whole right we need to do more yeah. to make things born accessible so that it's not this thing that we need to retrofit but it's being thought of from the conception stage yeah it's just so interesting something so that you would think has just different parallels like i bet before, if someone found out we were doing an episode on technology, they'd be like, what? Like, like get <laughs> get out of here. Like, this has nothing to do with, like, DNI. Once again, you're throwing DNI in something that has nothing to do with it. But it's so important. And uh, even what you made mention earlier, Alex, is the developers as well, right? And yeah. historically, the develop like when I think of technology, I think of Microsoft, and then I think of Bill Gates, and then I think of Steve Jobs, and I think of uh, these developers who are, are kind of the same same template, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and they're the big ones, right? You got to think the developers are going to be so diverse, right? Yeah. But we automatically think of who the the white men. Um, First of all, the good thing about coding is that anyone can learn to program. It's one of the most democratized thing that exists if you have access to the education. If you are not, um, you know, if you're getting enough food that you can eat and then you can learn the thing. Um, if you have the mental aptitude for that. And then once you've got all that, what do you do with it? Like, um, do you go into these big corporations and code all the hype things for people? Or do you go and sit quietly and do something in the on the sidelines? Like NVDA, for example, the screen reader that came about that is crushing JAWS is demolishing JAWS. Um, uh, and it's free. Came about because a few people decided that they were fed up with the monopoly that JAWS and other big manufacturers had on them. And yeah, I'll be candid, even though my job is to teach chores, like that's fine. But I don't, um, I think that the price gouging, well, they are, it's not, I think. Freedom Scientific uh, is very um, focused on maximizing profits and NVDA is not. And anyone can work on NVDA if they have the technical aptitude. 
the Freedom Scientific have got a little bit better, given now that they're a bit cheaper. Like it's uh, what? Uh, how much is it now? Um, a hundred bucks for a year. So for a mm. personal thing, there's less reason to pirate that now. But um, that's mm. fine. But what if you're on ODSP? You're getting eleven hundred dollars a month. You're supposed to live off eleven hundred dollars a month, um, okay. and you're not going to be able to afford that software which then means that people like a lot of times when i teach uh, come to work um i i give people uh open alternatives for things like nvda for the screen reader and open office for the uh word suite because why should like for most people nine like what uh, office is now what uh 10 bucks a month maybe 15 most people can afford that oh it's two cups of coffee they say which is true but if you only get $1,100 a month, you are not paying for any of that. And I see people come in and they're really stressed and upset because they need to work and they can't afford the tech. Mm. And uh, that, that right there tells me that we have a lot of work to do in the advocacy arena. Very good point. Um, and the Very fact good. that people don't think that technology underpins um, everything Tech is the way that you can um, either enslave yourself or free yourself. Yeah, Alex, I just want to uh, appreciate your comment about technology and how it needs to be equal access. And that is one of the ways that we can achieve more equity in society is that if everybody has access to affordable technology that they can get, that they can then learn to use and learn to use proficiently so that they can be successful in whatever they choose to do in terms of employment, in terms of academia, in terms of entertainment, that they have access to this technology that will then, you know, inform them in, in other parts of their lives. And uh, I think what you're saying about, you know, um, affordability and subsidies is so important because some provinces have um, assistive devices programs and some don't. And then, you know, if you are on some sort of um, support benefit, the amount of that is, is also varied. And yes, you need to make choices about, you know, where you're going to spend this money and what your priorities are and, just like healthcare, I, I think access to technology for people with lived disability, it is a requirement. And just to um, touch back on what you said about coding and that coding essentially is democratic, it just reminded me of um, the movie and the book that the people behind all of the math and the science and the physics that helped put American white men on the moon was attributed to African-American women. Mm -hmm. So to your point, these are unsung heroes. I don't think that tech is just to the purview of disability. It's to everyone. No, because digital literacy, it, it's yeah. imperative that everyone be given technology training. Um, because at some point, we're going to not be using anything but tech to do everything. And that point is coming pretty quickly. Yeah, and it's yeah, definitely very, very interesting and a very, very great perspective on on even technology as a whole and applying it to diversity and inclusion. So uh, we are coming up to the end of the episode and I hate when this happens because it's just such a good conversation. The ball's rolling and uh, we're getting so much insight. But the one last thing I I would love you to do is if, if you could leave the the listeners with any final thoughts about uh, your identities as well as technology or just anything that you would like to let the listeners know. Um. Okay. Yeah. I think that people need to be uh, including all of these things in uh, the ground zero. So if anyone here is deciding to have a business or is going to go on a venture, you need to be thinking about all of this stuff in the beginning before you even start. If you've already started and you're stressed because you don't know what to do, then you need to be going and finding people who are going to help you um, and not assuming that you know what's best for them, for those people. 
Like if I made a website right now, I know nothing about deaf blindness. I know next to nothing. I know that they use a braille display and I know that they can uh, go on a computer because we can use a computer with a braille display. That's quite ignorant. I know nothing. Um, if I was going to make something that was accessible to them, I would need to go and do research. And that research would pay me off uh, a lot because there'd be so many people who are grateful to just use the stuff. Like the fact that now I can go on uh, something and my iPhone will read what the picture is um, means I'm more likely to and feel more connected and more able to partake in the mainstream. So many people think we can't even type. So many people think that we can't cook and think that we can't dress ourselves and can't partake, participate in the world. We used to be in institutions, in little homes. So think about that whenever you're going on whatever your ventures are. And just remember that there are, uh, what, 8 billion people here now uh, in the world? Uh, it's a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, you want that to be as accessible to as many people as possible. Alex. I just want to thank you for appearing with us on The Lens today. Thank you for your candor, your sharing of your life journey, your blindness journey, um, all of the identities that make you who you are, your perspective on technology. I really enjoyed our conversation and I feel it was so informative. Uh, I thoroughly am grateful to have you as a guest and I hope Maybe when uh, more things advance in the world of technology, you'll come back and talk to us more about what's going on and what you're working on. Hi, Griffivi. Thank you for coming on The Lens Living Diverse. If you liked today's wonderful, hard-hitting, thought-provoking episode, uh, you could stream the episode on uh, your favorite platforms, as well as if you enjoyed any episodes in the past as well. And then also, if you would like to know more about diversity inclusion within the CNIB, you could go to the CNIB website, go to Advocate, and then click on We Are CNIB, and we have a plethora of different resources. And last but not least, if you have any input or you would like to be a part of the Lens Living Diverse, uh, you could email us at advocacy at cnib.ca. Once again, advocacy at cnib.ca. So uh, what a wonderful episode, as we made mention. I was one of your hosts, Ben, joined with Vivi. Bye, everybody. See you next time. See you next time on The Lens Living Diverse. Peace. <laughs>